there is loyalty there is actual loyalty to companies like this company stood by me when there was a drug uh, shortage they stood by me when uh, i i was shifting insurance those features uh, were very well received and they were created because from the pharma company's perspective i stand to lose uh, a patient who is going to be on my therapy for years i'm going to spend every uh, effort to make that happen i'm jennifer curtis and i'll be your host for today's episode of azias associates podcast today we're answering the question of how do you compete when you can't win on the data alone and is customer experience a viable strategy to competitively differentiate Twenty years ago, the oncology market was dominated by a few key players whose success was driven by single blockbusters that generated years of strong revenue at high margins. Today, the market has exploded. The combination of high unmet patient need and promising revenue potential has resulted in companies of all sizes dipping their toes into the market. In fact, 14 of the largest pharmaceutical companies have up to a third of their late stage R&D pipeline focused exclusively in oncology, and almost 700 companies have one or more assets in late-stage development. With this increase in competition, we are now seeing the MeTo dynamic starting to play out in oncology, with less clinically differentiated assets competing for the same indications and in patient populations. So, what's a company to do when faced with this intense competition and a product that won't sell itself? CS recently delivered a study in the US and Europe on customer experience in oncology. What the study revealed was that the product alone represented just 33% of the healthcare professional's experience. Surprisingly, overall experience was much more influenced by non-product aspects. Things like add-on services, engagement with clinical trials and medical service liaisons, or other interactions with company representatives. all of these aspects proved to be even more important in defining the customer's overall experience. While the idea of customer experience is not a new concept in the pharmaceutical world, it has been relatively absent as a core strategy for many of the leading oncology companies. Now it's coming back into the forefront as a viable strategy to competitively differentiate in a crowded landscape when the data alone won't cut it. Today, we'll hear from three different experts on how to create competitive differentiation when the product alone isn't enough looking at experiences within oncology and outside it our first expert is pranav sirastava a leader in the european customer experience practice pranav brings over 10 years working in healthcare with a focus in oncology how are you defining uh, customer experience within oncology so customer experience is everything beyond uh, the drug itself once the drug is approved the label says what it does uh, what we think of as customer experience entails the process of getting uh, the drug to the patient uh, what the steps involved there and essentially how patients feel about the company the the parallel i will draw is how when i say the word lego everyone has this fond memory in their mind when i should say the name of any pharma company i doubt any one of us does that right now and that's what we saw in uh, research that we've done as well you don't actually think uh, pharma companies create that uh, feeling 
if you will. I know it's hard to imagine pharma companies creating feelings, but it is uh, it is an emotion that we should think about. In Europe, you see a lot of companies create a negative uh, customer experience. The companies that create a positive one, uh, like Apple, reported on their uh, investor calls, they are very proud of it, it's like a 70% NPS. Uh, what we see in, in oncology overall is it averages to somewhere in the minus tens. So there's a large gap, right? And then that's the, re the research showed not only the gap, it also showed, well, what does it take? The companies that are actually creating a positive experience, what are they doing? And the big differences are creating a set of services, people, uh, engagements, interaction, investments, that are all consistent. They speak one language, right? We are in it for the patient, comes through in everything they do. Uh, that's uh, probably the biggest uh, takeaway from the work that we've done. So you're saying that you, in your research, you did un uncover that there are some companies that are really living this value of everything we do is for the patient and creating experience around that. And that is successfully differentiating them in their customer's mind. They are living it more than their peers are. <laughs> so mo most pharma companies aren't doing as good of a job. Uh, I, I often wonder the company that makes your phone is much more well-respected and loved than the company that makes the drug that keeps you alive. There's just this fascinating disconnect, right? Why wouldn't you want the uh, pharma company to have a better reputation? So that's, that's where uh, the, the gap lies. There, some are doing it better, right? So you have better products, uh, you have slightly better engagement, you have slightly more consistent work, uh, but they're not quite at the point where uh, we, tell, we tell stories of different brands uh, outside of pharma and everyone can connect with them but we can't find a single brand within pharma where we go, oh, here's an example, and everyone goes, yes. Like, I, I know it, I, can, I, I feel the warmth as soon as I say the word. Uh, that isn't quite there yet. Uh, it's certainly something to aspire to, and some brands are uh, leading the way. I think kind of building on that, another piece that came out of the research that you had done to kind of um, burst the myth that pharma can't be perceived positively, was comparing some of the major oncology players to, let's say, some of the rare disease pharma companies. Rare diseases are, I guess, the way maybe I've started thinking about this is rare diseases were forced into what pharma companies have to do now, hmm. right, which is launch into a smaller market, highly competitive space, so then they get a very small piece of the pie. Rare diseases were always small pieces of the pie, so it wasn't like they were playing for large numbers. And that's where they've had to do this by default. I, I couldn't find the thousand patients. I must keep every patient I have. And that kind of thinking forced them to be patient-centric and they have uh, these rather interesting, I guess, perceptions compared to regular, I guess, broader oncology companies even, right, where there is loyalty. There is actual loyalty to companies. Right? This company stood by me when there was a drug uh, shortage, they stood by me when uh, I, I was shifting insurance and there was a gap in insurance. And those, those features uh, were very well received and they were created because from the pharma company's perspective, I stand to lose uh, a patient who's going to be on my therapy for years. I'm going to spend every uh, effort to make that happen.
uh, and they've they've established that if you look in markets like hemophilia uh, in the recent past there have been changes and there's long acting agents that have come along but for a very long time even with those long acting agents there was a resistance to change until my company brought the long acting uh, onto the market so i like this company so much that i'm going to wait i i know i can get a injection like half at a half the frequency but i'd much rather uh, stick with the people i know pharmaceutical markets are uh, pretty much the only markets where we don't talk to customers like the end customer who uses our product uh, it's just not one of those uh, things that we do right we've never had to do it doctors write the uh, write the prescriptions let's let's try to understand our patients by talking to patients doctors see patients maybe every month if if it was a acute disease that means 98% of the patient's life is lived outside of the doctor's office 98% of the patient's experience is invisible to a doctor they can conjecture what happened between you know august 1st and september 1st probably don't know anything more than that but the rare disease model kind of spins it on its side and and looks the patient understanding the patient and often feeding that back to the healthcare professional and what you're saying is that actually that does inspire a lot of trust and loyalty with the healthcare professional yeah. by extension and i think the the rare disease model and i forget if this might have been like the 1970s or 80s but uh, in hemophilia comprehensive care models came a long time ago right comprehensive care being it's not just the doctor it's every other like social worker counselor all of them are involved in your care so there's almost a ecosystem of care providers around me as a patient that in itself extends this idea of care uh, beyond this one person who's responsible for this uh, and that creates a very different environment that you exist in as a patient so you have this uh, i somebody's watching out for me feeling so it's a really i think it's a really interesting kind of and and provocative challenge to you know the oncology industry because i know there's been a lot of resistance of no you know yeah rare disease is a very special place we can't possibly go down the same path you know compliance regulations um but it sounds like we're kind of challenging that cuz actually there are a lot of parallels right and in rare disease the costs are, are astronomical even compared to the already um high oncology prices where are your kind of takeaways like what do you think oncology companies can take away as learnings and apply there is the the human aspect that some companies have recognized right patients are people right i at the end of the day if you put me through a machine i feel like i went through a machine uh, i'd much rather have a human walk me through it if if that was at all possible uh, and some companies are doing that right i get one one point of contact that makes it a huge uh, hugely more engaging conversation the the day the pharma companies can get to a segment of one i think would make a difference uh, where technology and analytics and all of those things will enable that but we are not quite there yet yeah and it's definitely a kind of a future aspiration the the companies that are already starting to do this you mentioned there are some oncology companies that are already kind of dipping their toes what are the things that they're doing and what do you think will make them successful in it uh, the companies that are doing it as a experiment and learning from it with the intent to carry it forward 
uh, are probably going to benefit. Right? You don't have to do everything on day one. It's hard to make elephants dance, we get it. Uh, it's more the intent to say, we care about the patient. At some level, that must mean that your decisions change. We will invest in different things. Uh, if we need to create 50 apps, let's go create 50 apps. And maybe create another 50 because the first 50 didn't work. But like there, is, there must be uh, this expectation that you are going to be in this for the long haul. Uh, and companies that are doing it more as a sort of shiny ball now, right? and then next year when management changes, we'll just do something else. Uh, that's where the investment doesn't really uh, show, and, and you'll see it in the experience that patients have. Our next expert is Bill Coyle, the European managing partner who brings over 10 years experience working with clients across geographies and value and access. What are some of the pieces and trends that you're starting to see in terms of how oncology companies are competing when they're not the first and the best? I think on the commercialization side, second movers, third movers, whether it be in oncology or otherwise, I think are best served by focusing on simplicity. So what is it that I want you, physician, to know about my product? What are some of the trends you're starting to see with uh, payer expectations when they're facing um, several different products that may not seem as differentiated trying to compete? Sure, so I think on the payer side, really there are some advantages in, inbuilt to many of the European systems that if your product is uh, say at parity or not highly differentiated but as good as current entrants, you're likely, if you're priced at parity or very nearby, likely to be able to get access in many of the systems. Um, so in that case it's not all doom and gloom. I think the bigger challenge is when you're bringing in an expensive product that's replacing an inexpensive product. So replacing chemo. And that puts a very, very high premium on the evidence requirement and the quality of the product that you're bringing. Is it worth the additional 100,000 euros per annum. And I think that's where more of the tension is. When you're competing in a crowded space with other high-cost drugs, I think access can be navigated. I think it becomes much more difficult when you're competing against low-cost alternatives. Some of the ways that might be mitigated might be how you try to bring demonstration of evidence over time. So conditional launch, conditional access, where you're tracking data and coming back to the payer to show them the differential success, um, to show them that your product actually delivered what your clinical trial suggested uh, in the real world. Um, those do have some challenges though. Payers aren't always happy to sign up for those deals because it does put some workload on their physicians uh, in their systems as well. Are we seeing any evidence or experiences with that happening and what's the impact? So there are examples where, where payer systems, so Italy for example is I think a little bit ahead in some cases in, in trying to establish registries for newly launched oncology products to make sure they're getting uh, the impact that they want in the marketplace. I think the impact is still time uh, dependent to really see what comes out of it. But I think the willingness to engage on that front and to really the willingness of the manufacturer to show confidence in their product that it is going to deliver what they said is, is probably only a good thing. Um, but I don't think it makes it easy uh, by any stretch. Mm. What are some of the drivers in, in getting that willingness to collaborate between the pharma company and the payers? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges is that um, the pharma manufacturer can be quite self-centric when it comes to what they're trying to achieve. Rapid access at target price for their products. And they come up with lots of ways to try to make that happen. 
outcome-based contracting or novel ways of approaching uh, pricing in a particular marketplace. Unfortunately, what they're not always doing is putting themselves in the payer's shoes, where the payers are looking at literally dozens of different products every year and trying to ascertain how to make those fit in their budgets. Doing all these types of unique things is quite a burden on the payer system. And I think the, the biopharma side of things, I don't think they're always putting themselves completely in the payer's shoes to really understand, is this a good idea for them and me, or is it just a good idea for me? Um, and I don't think there's a clear answer yet, but I think approaching it with a much more curious uh, approach to understand what really could be beneficial for the payer. Uh, of course, the payer will start by saying price or bringing the cost down, but there could be other things that, are, that, are, that could be valuable to the payer. Mm. And thinking along those lines, what are some of the other things that, that could be valuable to the payer? And are there any industry examples that you can pull from that demonstrate the value of that collaboration? I think there's a, a couple of examples. Um, recently in the U.S., I think some biopharma manufacturers in the oncology space and crowded oncology spaces are actually piloting different ways of doing um, value-based pricing with, with payers. The interesting thing is I, I, I think historically we've thought if I'm going to do value-based pricing with payer X, every single script for that product or every single doctor who prescribes that product is implicated. And one of the pilots I've become aware of is the manufacturer worked with payers and just for physicians who opted in to the program and really detailing and tracking tumor shrinkage and a couple of other metrics, one of which was in the clinical trial, so tumor shrinkage. And basically the pharmaceutical manufacturer put their money where their mouth was to say you should get the tumor shrinkage rates that we see in our clinical trial. But they also had a secondary metric that was about other aspects of care that would be cost reducing. Um, I won't go into too much detail, just given the confidentiality, but what could be related to concomitant use of other drugs or hospitalizations. And that wasn't in their clinical trial, but they felt strongly they could deliver on it. Mm -hmm. And what they did was they tracked that as well. And they actually performed well on both metrics in the pilot with some payers, and the payers very much appreciated that. And so what they got in return, the manufacturer, was full reimbursement for the population that they were looking for. What the, what the payer got was actually an understanding of the value proposition in a deeper way than the clinical trial results could convey. And there's no reason to believe in this particular case there is differentiation between that drug and the other drugs in the class. The differentiation was that this manufacturer did it. So one of the, the things that you've you kind of pointed to or mentioned to before was this idea of simplicity mm -hmm. um, and simplicity in communicating your value proposition. What are some of the ways that uh, companies can differentiate on this, this aspect? So when we think commercially, leaving the value and access space sort of to the side for a moment, I think when you're competing, regardless of therapeutic area, when you're not the first, is being highly focused on what you're trying to achieve. Having a brand strategy that has seven pillars and four tactics per pillar is really going to be difficult to execute and potentially muddle your execution. So I think being simple and focused on the message that you want to bring to the marketplace. I think the second piece of that is making sure you're in service to your customers. So largely we'll focus on HCPs, but being in service to the HCP so that you create affinity for your company, for your brand in the healthcare provider. And what I mean by being in service to them is if you're an oncologist today or a rheumatologist or even a, even a GP, the number of things you have to know, you have to be able to keep track of, the data you have to sort of keep top of mind to make good decisions is pretty overwhelming. So if I can help you visualize for your product, my product, 
If I can help you as the physician visualize for my product the right patient or the right situation that creates a muscle memory between the simple profile that I've created in your mind and my product's utilization, I stand a much better chance of cutting through the clutter. I'm really trying to steer into the shortcuts we make as humans to, to take all the information we have and make good decisions. If I can really find the hook that connects that, it's, it can be very compelling. You can see that in some cases where the second entrant takes a lot of share from the first entrant and cases where the first entrant held share. Usually when you see the second entrant taking share, it's because they didn't focus on how great their data package was and how great their product was, which the first entrant could do with success because these products, for example, could be very good. What the second entrant did was create this really easy way for physicians to think about the use. If you just tell me about the data, I have to draw my own conclusions. But if you help me see the conclusions in a clear way, it's much easier for me to act on when that next patient comes through the door. And when you take that approach, how does that then extend to the payer? Is it the collaboration between the, the payer and HCP that you get the full benefit, or how does that work? I think if you're able to con convey simplicity to the payer in, in your product's value proposition, that just helps them understand how you compare. If you try to make a lot of nuanced arguments, how you might be a little bit different than your competitor, um, that may not serve your interest. If you're going for a premium where no premium is warranted, you're, you could be wasting time. And where you really want to make up for it is winning share in the marketplace, not the extra 2% you might eke out in that negotiation, which might be unrealistic anyway, because if they see you as the same as the other, you're going to get the same reimbursed price. Mm -hmm. So I think that can carry through if you focus on simplicity, transparency, speed with the payer. Maybe that gets you reimbursement faster at the same price as competitors, or maybe you have to negotiate a little bit there. Um, but can you make it up on the commercial side? Going back to the topic of, of value-based pricing and seeing some experimentation um, starting within oncology, have we seen that outside oncology and other places where that's been very effective? Most of the examples that exist on the U.S. side aren't intuitive in the sense that they're not necess necessarily clear why it was a good deal for either party. So they might look at if the outcome is achieved, the manufacturer uh, doesn't get any more money for it, right? So sometimes they, some of the more recent ones have maybe been um, publicity plays for both the manufacturer and the payer. Um, so that's why you see some of the same national payers have created multiple agreements that may or may not have a big impact, but it gives them something to talk about. Um, I think you see it a little bit more um, some on the European side, there are some value-based pricing agreements over time and historically um, that have been linked to fracture avoidance or um, lifetime caps for certain drugs. So you do see some value-based pricing agreements over time that, that have worked uh, for sure. I think the, the thing we have to ask ourselves is what are we trying to achieve with them? Are we trying to be innovative for innovativeness sake? Are we actually trying to help the payer through an uncertainty uh, or through a budget impact um, that we're going to create that helps them offset it? Or are we trying to actually demonstrate our value proposition? Our clinical trial didn't show this because it wasn't powered for it, but we're confident we can. So we're then going to show them that in the real world and give them money back if we don't deliver. Like it's, it has to link to your value prop, in my view. And kind of thinking ahead in the next few years and how the market continues to evolve, what are some of your predictions in terms of how the access landscape will evolve and how pharma will be engaging? I suspect it will only get harder in the short term for companies to achieve access for 
less differentiated drugs or negative, surely if it's if negatively differentiated on a particular characteristic, it might be much, much harder, even if the efficacy is better, for example. So I think it's not going to get much easier. I think there are some real issues that payers and pharma need to work through together when you think about multi-brand combination utilization. If you're the second brand to come to market and the first brand is already priced at, let's call it 100,000 euros per annum, and maybe the payer is willing to pay 120,000 per annum because of the increased value adding on that second product, it can feel quite inequitable as the second player to only get 20,000 per year when you've actually added quite a lot of benefit. Why wouldn't we both get 60? Right now, health systems aren't set up to deal with that. And of course, there's no particular incentive for the first manufacturer you've layered on top of to do anything with their price to make room. So I think that's a particular issue that likely pharma and payers have to work through together because most, I'd say basically no systems are really designed to contemplate mm -hmm. that kind of utilization. I think that'll be a unique issue, particularly in oncology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so building on that, that is a, a unique situation to oncology, um, but the idea of multiple competitor products coming into the landscape and increasing cost burden is not a new one. We see that a lot, you know, particularly in primary care where you're trying to service huge populations. Um, do you have any experiences from primary care, I don't know, perhaps hypertension or diabetes, highly competitive markets, where a second, third, fourth, me too drugs have come to market and managed to surpass um, the initial market leader through any kind of access-based strategy? I think I can recall a case in the UK years ago, more in secondary care than primary care in the autoimmune space, where a manufacturer took the risk off the system by offering a deal that is essentially free use upfront. And essentially what it did was allow the payer and physician to and the patient to experience utilizing the product to see if it worked. If it didn't work, no harm, no foul. You move on to another, another product. The interesting thing what it did in this particular case is because of something unique in the UK um, framework at the time was a lifetime number of biologics one could use in a particular category. If I used this one first, then didn't have to pay for it because the patient didn't respond effectively, um, then that didn't count as one of my lifetime biologics. So then I could move to a second, third, etc. So I gave the patient more shots over his or her lifetime living with the disease by actually using this brand new product rather than using one of the stalwarts that had been in the class for a long, long time. The interesting thing is the product was highly efficacious and probably better than some of the standards of care in that particular indication they were after. And of course, patients started on the drug, it worked, and they stayed on the drug. So that was a case of a, I don't know, maybe third, fourth, fifth line, fifth to market, where they actually won some share through an access angle. Um, now, there were some unique circumstances there, but I think it is about understanding the unique circumstances in your therapeutic area and how you can design what you're trying to achieve um, for the payer. From the value and access perspective, customer centricity is where pharmaceutical companies can look to add more value. Our third and final expert is Falco Meisner-Graf, the European lead of the key account management practice. He shares a view that customer centricity can be achieved with key account management, using it as a business strategy to foster a customer-centric mindset and deliver a superior customer experience. Competition in general, it's fierce, right? It's not only on budgets and patients, but also on the attention from, from healthcare professionals. 
um, when we think about these new entrants, they should be able to engage across stakeholders, be very quick and, and effective with their seamless coordination. And we're often hearing companies saying, Cam, we're implementing key account management to work with our customers in order to do so. Um, but I think one of the things that we tend to see is that this definition of what CAM is is misinterpreted and not well implemented. Um, what, what's, your, what's your impression on that? Yeah, um, so I agree with the point of the misinterpretation of what key account management is. And I think pharma companies start to rethink their definition. I think that's also where the hype now comes from. In the past, CAM was seen as a role, maybe as a selling approach, while in reality key account management is a business strategy that helps you to get closer to your customers and act based on their needs. So that means it is a, it's really a business strategy that works cross-functionally and I think pharma companies start to understand that. Versus in the past they were really thinking like, oh that might be more an elevated sales role, it is maybe something that we train our people to do. Um, that has changed and I think that's what pharma companies start to realize now. So from my perspective, key account management is a transformation of the customer engagement approach um, and it is a transformation that is as big as any other transformation that we see currently, maybe patient centricity, customer centricity, big data, whatever it is. And I think this is where, where we see the industry is going right now. Mm. Mm -hmm. what, are, what are some of the triggers that you see that start leading to, to this kind of approach and, and pursuing this type of business strategy? Yeah, um, I mean it's an increasingly complex environment, right? So it's increasingly complex in terms of customers, it's increasingly complex in terms of getting access to customers, customer needs, budget constraints. So if you look at that, there's lots of restrictions going on into the market and key account management is, a, is an approach that helps companies to navigate that complexity. Um, getting closer to their customers and satisfying their needs and I think it's really this this, this notion of, okay, we don't get enough access, um, we don't have sufficient insights about our customers, um, and we probably also don't really act up on their needs because we don't have sufficient insights. And I, this is the driver for such a comprehensive business strategy like key account management that aims to comprehensively understand the customer. There's still a spot of mutual value, that is a point we, we should talk about later. Um, and then delivering that value proposition in close collaboration with the customer. And I think that's, if you, if you look at that, the, the comprehensive approach that key account management is, I think this also shows how comprehensively you can tackle all the complexity that is going on in the market. And so it sounds like there are a lot of different mm -hmm. angles and mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, you mentioned this idea of kind of mutual value creation. Yes. Uh, are there any examples from the pharma landscape where this has been successfully implemented? Yes, I mean there, there's a couple of examples where pharma companies have done it really well um, and that is when they started small. So that's one thing, right? You need to start small. It's about carefully selecting the accounts that should be key accounts because they have big value for you and you're also able to create value for them. Um, and then if you, out of these few accounts, select another few, so a small sample of accounts that you want to work with in that new way, and then later on you can scale it up. So I have one example from Oncology where there was a company that introduced a new product and the product was not used. So the adoption of that product was really low. Um, so the first thing they did was they thought, okay, let's increase our face time with physicians, let's use more sales rep, try to get more calls, try to get more access, but it didn't work out at all. Um, so then <clears throat> what they did is they started to 
talk to a few accounts and find out what is the problem that is there. And they found out it was a problem with the usage of the product, which is something that is around the product, not the product itself. Physicians believed in the product, but the way to apply that product was a problem. It was burdensome for the account. So what they actually did is they went into that account with multiple functions actually. So that's another feature of CAM, right? It's a cross-functional approach. So you have your medical people, your market access people, your sales people, your marketing people. And I think that's a really good example of, of key account management. So you go into the account, you understand their challenge or their needs. You co-create the solution with the account and you co-implement the solution. And then of course later on you follow up on is it successful? Is there anything we can do to improve it? Um, and you do that with a cross-functional team on your end and a cross-functional team on their end. I think it, it's, it's an ideal example, actually. And mm -hmm. I, I wonder, yeah. you know, in conversations with, with various clients, do you get a lot of pushback or skepticism that do our customers really want to engage with us yeah. that way? Um, how mm -hmm. do you respond to that? Yeah, you do. As I said in the beginning, key account management is really a big transformation. So you need to think about the change management aspect of it early on, which means you need leaders in your company that visibly and actively support key account management. You really want to make sure that this happens, um, which means it is important that at the beginning you set an objective for your key account management program. And it should not be that key account management is the objective by itself, because I've seen that. So they say our strategic objective is key account management. That doesn't work. And then it's really, as I said, starting small. So if you start small, you really need to find a team that is willing to do it and you will find. There's usually, so try to find customer facing teams that are looking for something interesting, a more innovative approach and create that early success story with them. I had this skepticism a couple of times um, and then I worked with small teams. So I'm working with small teams in the field implementing key account management. And one of the first signs that it's working is the feedback that these teams get from their customers. And this is really something I like to tell because these customers get back and say, hey, wow, somebody really wants to talk with us beyond the product. I think if you create these early success stories, you can see that access increases. This is one of the early signs that this really works. It's access increases, customer feedback is very positive. You get a higher frequency with these customers. You get broader access to a broader set of senior stakeholders. I think it's about these early success stories that you need to create with, and there is usually one team that is willing to try it, and that's enough. Um, what are the core difficulties in actually being able to implement it successfully? And do you need to already have existing relationships in an area, in a space, or can a new player coming in quickly establish that as well? I've seen both cases. Um, so if you already have established relationship, it's probably easier to go in and say, hey, um, we, we want to try something new and we really want to get beyond our product and we want to talk what are, the, what are the challenges that you're facing. I think if you have an established relationship, this talk might be easier. On the other hand, if you have no relationships, it's probably also a really nice door opener um, so I guess kind of final, final question, um, what would your advice be to a pharma company that is, is launching in an established market mm -hmm. um, where they may or may not have existing relationships mm -hmm. but certainly don't have a product that's going to, to sell itself? How would, you, how would you talk about CAM to them and yeah. where should they get started? <laughs> um, I think the first thing is they need to 
suspend their agenda because they will be very focused on their launch product. I understand that. But the product launch, I mean, there's still a sales force that will take care of that. There's still a marketing team, right? All these launch efforts, they can go on as usual. But CAM is another approach to customers to make that launch successful. But you need to go beyond your actual product and think about in that launch situation, what are pockets of mutual interest for the account and your launch product, your launch TA that you would like to tackle? Um, I think very important, it will be very important to understand how is your product better than the competitor product and where um, do you lag behind your competitor? I think you need a clear understanding to then articulate the value proposition that you want to bring. Uh, and this value proposition obviously needs to go beyond the product and beyond what your competitor is already offering. While if you would go with an isolated approach, you might have a very product focus, isolated perspective on the account and the situation, and you might miss opportunities of competitive advantage. Or you might also oversee where you have a competitive disadvantage. That, that what, that's, I think, is, is one of the key features of CAM. It provides you this holistic view. Once you have these holistic insights, you can then go um, and create a value proposition that exactly tackles that competitive advantage. The competitive advantage, of course, needs to be of mutual interest also for your account. But again, a CAM approach provides a holistic view on it, so it might be easier to get to that and also to deliver it. And I think if CAM is bringing additional value to customers, that is probably where you can, even if you're second, third or fourth to market, you still bring value. And I think that's how you can make your product successful in the market using a CAM approach. Great. Well, thank you, Falco. Today we spoke to three experts, offered a different way to use customer experience to competitively differentiate in increasingly complex and crowded landscapes. So what are the implications for an oncology company that's facing a competitive launch? Well, if you can't win on the data alone, don't try. Look beyond the data, look to the non-clinical to find opportunities to create value for your customers in ways that also reinforce your value proposition. Next, meet your customer where they are today, not where you think they should be. Customers don't care about your objectives or your brand's objectives. They care about their own experience and the gaps that exist in today's reality. And finally, always be in service to your customers. Find ways to co-create value with them, to understand, anticipate the gaps in their current experience. From there, you'll be able to create opportunities that build stronger relationships. And they will thank you by giving feedback. And that will help you be more successful going forward. Thank you for joining us. And that's it for this edition of the ZS Associates podcast.